But if you turn in your Bibles with me at this time to the book of John, the book of John chapter 19, our scripture reading will begin in verse 38, and you can download from our website some sermon notes there as well. John chapter 19, verse 38 through chapter 20, verse 10, as we look at the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, bringing hope in the midst of despair for those who loved the Lord Jesus. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 20, verse 10. John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who was first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own home. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, what a wonderful, wonderful testimony of the risen Savior, our Lord. We pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. And may you fill our hearts with great joy and great hope today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Like many of you, I've been watching the news for the past two months, it seems as if there's been a steady stream, a steady stream of bad news, and it seems to get worse by the day. 
COVID-19 has had a devastating impact upon our country. In some areas, our healthcare system is taxed to its limits. It is extremely difficult for workers who are pulling multiple shifts. Financially, it's estimated that the third of all people who are renting in America are unable to pay their rent in full this month. Many small businesses have not been able to survive. Unemployment applications have been at levels not seen in our generation. And even as I was watching the news this morning, there were long, long lines in certain parts of the country simply to get food. A March 18th article of the HuffPost entitled, quote, Panic Attacks and Night Terrors. The mental health toll of coronavirus isolation is exacerbating symptoms for people with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. When we look around the world, especially in developing nations where poverty is rampant, the situation is even worse. The number of countries that have shut down with people living in poverty, the situation is dire. People in those countries need to work because in their poverty, they work enough to make that day's amount in order to feed themselves and their families, or for a few days. And if there's even a hint of contracting the coronavirus in some countries, the availability of medical care is scarce. And even if it was available, it'd be economically out of reach for many who are poor. And then they have to make a decision because having the breadwinner of the family, if they are sick, quarantined for two weeks in a hospital is unimaginable for the mere survival and the feeding of their family. It is rather unimaginable, the life and death situations that are faced daily, not only among healthcare workers, but among those who are impoverished countries, parts of the world where people make less than $2 a day. In an article published on Thursday, April 10th, George Lowestein, he's the professor of economics and psychology at Carnegie Mellon, said, quote, we've already have unprecedented levels of death and despair. And if we have a lost generation as a result of the coronavirus pandemic that's going to have mortality consequences. Anne Case and Agnes Dayton, economists at Princeton University, first chronicled these, quote, deaths of despair among middle-aged non-Hispanic Caucasians since 1999. And in their chronicle, they've included deaths by suicide, alcohol poisoning, overdoses of opioids, other drugs, cirrhosis of the liver. The CDC estimates that such deaths of despair have almost doubled since 1999, reaching 150,000 in 2017, with one-third of that figure accounted for by suicide. And now with the worldwide pandemic, the number of deaths of despair will undoubtedly increase, Sacramento News article just on April 6th, quote, telephone calls and texts to the Wellspace Health's suicide prevention and crisis line from across California increased by 40% between February and March amid the coronavirus crisis. While we may see a flattening of the curve in our local area, the devastating effect of this virus will linger on in the lives of people, sometimes permanently, if not for years to come, in the coming months for sure. 
There is a lot of despair in our world. There is a lot of desperation in our world. But there is a cure for despair. And the cure for despair is hope. Without a light at the end of the tunnel, there is discouragement, there is depression. Without something to anticipate in the future, life simply becomes futile. Without hope, there is despair. Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Easter brings hope. Christians have a hope that no amount of money could ever buy. Christians have a hope that good health cannot outlive. Christians have a hope that this world cannot see. And no matter what happens in this world, there's a hope that Christians have in the life to come that will never, ever fade. Why? Because that hope is in the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, who came to die on the cross for sinners, taking their punishment, taking their shame, suffering for them, buried and arising in three days, resurrected from the dead. And because Christ is alive, he gives eternal life and eternal hope to anyone who would come to him. Anyone who had come to place their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus, Christ will give them a hope that they have never experienced before, a hope that is eternal. Because he grants to them an everlasting hope, because he grants to them the free gift of eternal life for those who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he has done, recognizing that they are sinners who could never earn that hope. So I want to underscore for you the importance of the resurrection as we look at this passage on the burial and the resurrection of Christ because Easter celebrates, Easter celebrates the most significant event in the Bible. The resurrection is the focal point of God's redemptive plan. The resurrection is the pinnacle of redemptive history. The resurrection is the crowning event of God's plan of salvation. And while our culture often glamorizes Christmas, which is also an important time of the year, the Bible upholds the resurrection as not simply central to the message of Christianity, but essential to the message of Christianity. Because there is no greater event in the Bible than the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the dead, I think. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no living Savior. Without the resurrection, there is no eternal life. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. And the resurrection is the guarantee that someday we who believe in Christ, who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, who have turned from our sins, will also be resurrected as well and live eternally. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. The resurrection is key. Where there is no resurrection, there is no hope. Without hope, we don't have any purpose. We lose heart. We lose motivation. Without hope, people spiral into despair. And last Friday, as we looked at the passage in Mark chapter 14 on the Last Supper, we reflected upon his suffering and his death in our time of communion. This morning, we look at his burial and his resurrection 
in John 19 and 20. So if you'd look with me in the text, John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42, chronicles what happens during the burial of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, tells us that Jesus was crucified around noon and died about three hours later at 3 p.m. on Friday. Now, people have wondered if Jesus died on Friday and was raised on Sunday, how it could be that he was three days as predicted, three days, and then he would rise. Well, that's not a problem, because in the Jewish mindset, any part of a day would be considered one day. So, one day, buried on Friday, died on Friday, and then on Saturday, and then he was raised from the dead on Sunday. That's three days. And Americans have that same perspective. When you open up a a vacation package brochure, it says five days, four nights leaving on Monday. They don't care if you come on Monday at 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. That's the first day. And then on the fifth day, on Friday, you could leave Friday 1 a.m. or 1 p.m. They consider that your fifth day. We're used to that. We understand that. So Jesus was buried and died and rose again after three days. The Bible says in 19, John 19.42, the last verse, that the Jews, the Jews, therefore because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The Jews were concerned about having a body on the cross on the Sabbath as Jesus died on that Friday. According to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, they couldn't leave a dead body exposed on the Sabbath and therefore defile the Sabbath. And it was especially sensitive to them because this was the Sabbath in which the Passover would happen. It was considered a high day. And so they wanted that body taken down. If it was up to Rome, Rome would typically allow the bodies to hang on the cross, to rot, and then the vultures would come as probably a sign in order that they might psychologically cause fear within anyone who would see it. And they say that that's what would happen if you oppose Rome. So Roman soldiers would typically come around and they would break the legs of those who were still alive on the cross in order that those who were still on the cross would suffocate because they would be unable to push themselves up by their legs and thus be able to take a breath. But if their legs were broken, then they would suffocate to death. But when they came to Jesus, they found that Jesus had already died and didn't break his legs, and thus again prophecy was fulfilled. In John 19.38, we see here that there is a man who comes, if you look at your text, a man who comes whose name is Joseph of Arimathea. And he is a disciple of Jesus, a secret one for fear of the Jews. And he comes to ask of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, and so he came and took away his body. Here was a secret disciple of Jesus, not a proponent of the plot against Jesus. He risks his position. He risks his reputation. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews that convicted Jesus falsely. Here he comes to take away the body of Jesus in order to bury him. And the next verse tells us in 39 that Nicodemus also came. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee who came. He brought myrrh and he brought aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. And in our our, our, our amount of weight, it would be about 65 pounds. 
And this amount is significant of aloes, of myrrhs, that he would put all these spices that were used. The amount that was used for him was not used, usually used of a person who was considered a commoner. That amount of aloes and myrrhs and spices was given often for one who was a king. So Nicodemus honors him as a king by bringing all of these spices and aloes in order to cover the body of Jesus after it was wrapped with linen cloths. It wasn't this mummification or embalming process. Mummification was done by the Egyptians. Jews didn't do that. But they were used to stifle the smell as the body would putrefy and decay. Now, being a very wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, he owned a tomb, it tells us. He owned a tomb in the garden in which Jesus was was crucified. It was a brand new tomb, carved out by hand. That was important because in order to take the body down, prepare it for burial, and place it in a tomb, it had to be nearby. There was a short period of time by which they could do this, and they had to do it quickly. So Joseph must have been very well-to-do. He must have been a man of great means because he had his own hand tomb all ready to go. Just like today, if you go and pre-buy some sort of burial plot in some cemetery, you know that it's not cheap. Joseph must have been very well-to-do. This was all in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. In God's will, in God's prophetic will, he fulfills this even here. They prepare the body. They place the spices on it. They place the myrrh and the aloes on it. They place the body in the tomb, and they rolled a large stone in front of it and closed it off. When people mourn those who have passed away, Often, this is the most difficult moment for family and friends when a body is lowered into the grave or a tomb or a door is shut. And it is a heartbreaking time. And at this point in time, all hope in the minds of the apostles would have been lost if it had not already been lost already. Jesus, in their view, was dead. He was buried. Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb. And if that were the end of the story, then our faith would have been in vain. But in the providence and the divine plan of God, the story has an ending that brings about a surprise to the reader who is unanticipating what would happen next. Chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, this would be the first day of the Sunday, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. The book of Matthew tells us there were guards assigned to guard the tomb. And yet when Sunday came, that stone was rolled away. This was the first day. That is, by the way, why Christians celebrate or worship on Sundays because of the first day that Jesus arose from the dead. Mary comes to the tomb. She doesn't see Jesus there. She runs off to tell Peter and John, telling them in verse 2, the body has been taken. They don't know where she is and where they took the body to. And Peter and John run to the tomb. And John, perhaps in better shape, gets there first. He beats Peter there. And when he looks into the tomb, he sees, quote, the linen wrappings lying there. The face cloth, which had been in, on his head, rolled up in a place by itself, verse 7. And that little detail is very important. That little detail is mentioned, I believe, for a purpose because it underscores the fact 
that the body of Jesus wasn't stolen from the grave as Mary had first presumed. And it dispels the lie that the religious leaders had told the soldiers to spread. Because if somebody wanted to steal the body of Christ, they wouldn't have taken the time to carefully unwrap the body and all of the gummy spices and aloes that would have been there and then neatly place the face cloth in its own place. No, grave robbers would have been in and out as quickly as possible, carrying that entire sticky mess along with the body and dripping all over the place wherever they would run to. But they found the face cloth, which had been on his head, rolled up in a place by itself, the linen wrappings lying there. And in verse 8, the other disciple, that would be John, who had first come to the tomb and then entered, saw it. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. That's all it took for John to believe in the prophetic word that had been fulfilled, an empty tomb, and nearly neatly wrapped grave clothes, and suddenly you can imagine the heart of the Apostle John, and, and even in perhaps Peter, what, must, what they must have thought. Because just a few nights ago, few nights ago, the entire cast of the disciples, they were languishing in despair along with others. There they were sitting in that upper room with their dreams dashed. They had plunged into utter sorrow and discouragement because Jesus had begun really impressing upon them the fact that he was going to leave them, the fact that he was no longer going to be with them. He impressed upon them that he was going to suffer and be cruelly killed on the cross, buried. Now they see Throughout the few days that they would see Jesus being beaten and they would see him suffer, they would see him crucified on the cross, even if they saw it from a distance, it would be such a discouragement that the one whom they thought would be the one who would come and establish a kingdom here on earth right at that time was now dead would have been a dashing of their dreams. But now, the empty tomb the neatly wrapped grave clothes must have filled John's heart with tremendous anticipation. And the rest of the book of John details how hundreds of people would witness Jesus who would appear after his resurrection to them. And how we have so much detail even today about his resurrection how much joy must have filled his heart. And later on, the disciples would encounter Jesus and Jesus would speak with them and Jesus would talk with them and later on, Jesus would even eat with them. All of these things speak of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that now filled their heart. And the question for you and I are, do you believe? Do you believe? The testimony of the scriptures of the empty tomb, the testimony of the disciples who saw and ate with Jesus, the testimony of the hundreds of people in the book of Acts who would see Jesus and later on they would testify. 1 Corinthians 15, the Savior of the world is no longer dead but alive today even after 2,000 years. John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question for us as well. Do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave on the third day? And do you bow the knee to him? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The message of Easter is one of hope the hope of eternal life for all who repent and turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus. And today you can too have that salvation. You too can have that hope. You can be saved from your sins which condemn you to hell for eternity. And if you turn to Jesus, the promise of eternal life in heaven after you die is granted to all who are repentant. Just ask of God, to save you. Confess to God that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin and ask Jesus to save you from the punishment of your sins in hell and grant to you the free gift of eternal life because there's nothing you could ever do to gain your way into heaven. And when you do, you can be sure of the promise in 2 Corinthians 4.14 knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. That is our hope. That is our hope, that this life is not all that there is. This body is not our final body. This world is not our home. So how can we apply this, especially for those who already know Christ? Number one, put your hope in what is eternal. Put your hope in what is eternal and despair will disappear. If you place your hope fully on what is eternal, the eternal life that you have been granted if you're a child of God, the eternal reward that is to come, your despair will disappear. Hope is a powerful, powerful motivator, has tremendous meaning, has incredible motivation. When everything else seems to fall apart and despair sets in, hope is the cure for despair. Hope in Christ, hope in God, hope of what is eternal. Take, for instance, if you have two employees, two employees who are working at whatever job, menial job perhaps, a, a job that is monotonous, has working conditions that are less than ideal, and they work in an essential position now, shift after shift. And the company says to one of those employees, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give you an extra dollar per hour for all the work that you're doing. At the end of this pandemic, we're going to give you an extra $200 or $100, I should say, perhaps, at the end of four months. But to the other employee, second employee, they say, you know what? Instead of your wages that you're earning now, we're going to pay you $200 per hour. And the end of this pandemic, whether it's two months or four months or maybe eight months, we're going to give you a bonus of $2 million. And 
will also give you an extra $100,000 for every single person that you recruit to come work for us. Which of these two employees would you say is going to complain less about their job? Which of these two employees do you think is going to be more tolerant of the working conditions? Which of these two employees do you think is going to have a better attitude? Which of these two employees is, do you think are going to recruit as many workers as they could? Which of these two employees are, do you think is going to do everything possible to stay employed at that job? Why? Because one worker looks at the future, whether it's four months or six months or eight months, and they can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and they see the greatness of that reward, that bonus they're going to get. And they will strive to be the best that they can possibly be because of the hope of future reward. And my fear today is that many Christians, they view the future sort of like maybe the first employee, they've lost sight of perhaps the value that is set before them, thinking that perhaps it's only $100 and their treasure is here today on this earth. But if you see the greatness and you see the value of your heavenly treasure, of what is eternal, it will drive your life. And if that second worker had been making far below par at the very beginning, hardly anything and you decide you're going to give them hope like that, oh, it'll raise their spirits from despair to optimism. And it will help them to be able to see what? To be able to see that there is a future, to be able to tolerate the difficulties of today, that the suffering of their job, the suffering of this world is going to be insignificant compared to the reward that will come in the future. When there is a hope of eternal reward, when there's the hope of eternal life, when we see the value of eternity and what God has promised to us and our hope and our value is there, then what we face today will pale in comparison to that which we are looking forward to in the future. And so too, Christians, the future reward because of the resurrection, the hope of the treasures of heaven, make today's suffering and trials so much more bearable. So number one, put your treasure and your hope in the future reward. And if you've lost sight of how valuable that is, then I encourage you to think twice about what God has promised you and I. Secondly, you have hope. As a Christian, so you are responsible to give hope. You have hope, so you are responsible to give hope. As a child of God, you have a responsibility to give hope, to give encouragement, to see the needs around you and not turn a blind eye to the needs and the burdens of other people. It is easy to miss the pain. It is easy in our own, perhaps, cocoon if you're living in comfort to forget about the needs of others, but God has called us to have a heart of compassion, to give hope, because you know the Savior. There is a reason why the Bible tells us in Galatians 6.1 that we are to bear one another's burdens. 
We're to encourage one another because in the world that is so infected by sin and now infected by the coronavirus, it threatens so much so to pull millions of people into despair, if not already. And to share the hope that you have is our responsibility, especially during this time of Easter. We live in a unique time in all of history to share the hope that is within us. So make the most of that opportunity. In Wuhan, China, where it is believed that this coronavirus first originated, there is a church there called the Foot Church, Christian Church, RFCC, in Wuhan, China. And when the outbreak happened, the church's senior pastor decided to stay for three reasons. One, to care for the congregation. Two, to rescue lives of unbelievers by sharing the gospel. Three, to calm the fearful souls of believers. And in an online webinar that was hosted by a Congress on World Evangelization, the pastor shared how his church had witnessed God's grace in spite of the challenging situation faced by the Wuhan residents, because as you know, they shut down the entire city. He said, quote, the Wuhan pneumonia, officially known as COVID-19, is a rarely seen disaster in human history, yet everything presents an opportunity to glorify God. In response to the outbreak, the RFCC had stopped its services and changed it to online worship. Currently, the RFCC has 550 members. Divided into 54 small groups, more than 30 small groups gather online daily for one to two hours, and they pray, they study the Word of God, they worship, they share with one another. The members became even more closely knit during that time, and many churches around that area had confirmed patients of COVID-19. And in light of this, what they did was they sent out Ten members with protective gear every day to deliver meals, to deliver masks, to deliver sanitizing spray, to deliver medicine, other antiviral supplies for vulnerable Christians to take care of their needs. And through this, they showed the love of Christ. Through this, they modeled Christ. Through this, they shared about how Christ gave himself up. And he says, we have seen God's grace after the outbreak of coronavirus, he shared, because last year they were almost banned by the government. As many of you know in the history, in the past decade or so, the crackdown upon Christians in that country has been much more severe. They've moved the service to online, and they have this technical foundation in which the believers can gather online the nationwide fasting movement held from February 3rd to 5th, which was initiated by this church, was once stopped by local authorities, but now they've recognized this church's actions. One of the police officers said that they even need to pray for this city. What an opportunity. What an opportunity that is open for them to share, and they took that opportunity. What an opportunity for them to share, and what an opportunity it is for us to share we have hope, and we are responsible to share that hope, to have that courage to share that hope. 
So pray that God would open doors of opportunity for you. See the opportunities that lie before you and have courage to share about the hope that you have within you. You have hope and you are responsible to share that hope of the resurrection because you know the Savior. Unless, of course, you only view your future reward as a small, paltry sum, then you're not going to be motivated to share So ask of God that he would help you to see the greatness of the reward, that you might focus on that which is eternal, that you might live for what is eternal, that you might invest in that which is eternal, that you might use your time even now to share the hope that is within you because there are needs. There are needs that people have. Even as you look on TV, you might not know of ones around your neighborhood or whatnot. Maybe you do. I don't know. But there are needs. And if you ask of God, that God would give you boldness to share about him. That pastor in Wuhan, China wrote, quote, If Christians are more afraid of death than the world during a disaster, then the sufferings they have endured would be in vain. God wants us to overcome difficulties through him. This epidemic provides an opportunity for us to introspect our faith, reflect on ourselves, strengthen our spiritual life, and to depend on God. If Christians are more afraid of death than the world during a disaster, then the suffering they have interred would be in vain. You know, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but are not unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear. Fear God. Death for Christians is not an end. It is merely the beginning of an eternal life in heaven. Because Jesus is alive, because God is in control, there is no need to be fearful. So if you're a Christian, you can have the hope. You have the hope that you are responsible to share with others. And if you're not Today, you can have that hope. Today, you can turn your life over to Christ. Today, you can become a Christian. Today, you can repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and place your faith and trust in Him. And God will grant to you that hope and that eternal treasure that will never, ever disappear. So place your treasure and put your hope in that future reward. And secondly, you have that hope. So give that hope. As Bill Gaither writes in the lyrics of this well-known hymn, God sent his son, they called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come before your throne of grace. And what a blessing it is that we have hope as your children. And Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. Help us, Lord, to see with eyes of compassion the lives of others who do not hold the same hope that we do. 
Grant to us, O Father, the courage to share of your magnificent grace, of the risen Lord, of the Savior who died and rose again, that we might have life. Help us, Lord, to make the most of every opportunity to share that hope. Place within our hearts a greater understanding and vision for the eternal treasure which you have placed before us. And may you, O God, may your Spirit work within us. Grant to us peace, grant to us courage, and grant to us great joy, because your Son is arisen from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.